morning, everybody. Hey, morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. I'd like to start our time today with a story. It's going to launch us into our message this morning. So during my time in college, I had the privilege to live with my pastor, his wife, and their 10 kids for a summer. (laughs) It was quite the experience living in a house with 10 kids running around. I mean, their kids literally everywhere. You open the pantry door for a snack, and out popped the kid. When I say everywhere, I literally mean everywhere. (laughs) They were everywhere. I remember a few weeks into it, talking to the pastor and asking, how do you do this? How do you live with 10 kids running around? As we talked, he shared with me a story about the importance of guardrails, about guardrails. (laughs) He told me that when they first moved in, they were having a deck installed off their second floor. The deck itself was finished, The steps were finished, but there was no guardrail around the deck. It was wide open. He then told me the story about how his daughter somehow got outside onto the deck and was dancing and twirling on one sunny afternoon. You probably know where this story is going. As she was toddling around, young and carefree, she got a little too close to the edge, and she ended up falling off the deck into the shrubs below. Now, thankfully, she wasn't hurt. In fact, she just laughed it off and went on her way. But the very next thing they did after locking the door to the deck was to call the deck guy and get the railing installed post-haste. So the pastor then looked at me with that pastoral twinkle in his eye and told me how important guardrails are, and how we, as followers of Jesus, need them so we don't fall off the deck of life, as only a pastor could say, right? And I love, I love him for it. So I learned from that story how guardrails are a good thing, that they give us healthy and appropriate boundaries so we can flourish inside them. Now, you may be wondering why all this talk of decks and guardrails. Well, here at BCC, the elders have taken a considerable amount of time crafting guardrails for our collective faith in Jesus. These guardrails are called our statement of faith. So before we go further, I want to take a quick four-question poll. Now, now listen, this isn't meant to bring shame but just to get a feel for how we're doing with these guardrails. So here are the four questions. Raise your hand, number one, if before this morning you knew we had a statement of faith as a church. Okay, most hands, good. Number two, raise your hands if you know where you can find this statement of faith. Oh, good. Okay. Number three, raise your hands if you've ever opened and skimmed our statement of faith. Okay, not as many hands. And then number four, raise your hands if you've read our statement of faith in its entirety. Okay, so we have some work to do. Uh, it's a good thing, though, that I'm, I'm glad some hands went up on some, most of them. So here's the point of all this. Churches write down a statement of faith 
So the people who make up that church know this is what we believe, this is what we stand on as a church, and this is what we don't believe in, right? We delineate this is our collective faith in Christ. Like guardrails, these statements outline what we understand the Bible to say about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about mankind's condition, about God's plan of salvation, how we grow as Christians, what is the role of the church, the end times, and all those kind of things. So if you haven't guessed it, here at BCC, we take our statement of faith really seriously, and we have to. In the world system we find ourselves in, one where each person can have their own personal view of truth, where you can identify literally as anything you want, where the only absolute is the absolute, that there are no absolutes. I want us to be the kind of people who know what we believe and why we believe it. So for the next seven weeks, we're, we're doing this series called What We Believe. And we're going to look at what we believe here at BCC. We're going to take time on each Sunday morning to walk through our statement of faith. And then if you haven't signed up yet, we have these connect groups, Sundays, Tuesdays, and Wednesday nights, to go deeper into this, ask questions, and to wrestle with it in groups, and, and really to think through the implications of our statement of faith in our daily lives. So as disciples of Jesus, remember that's who we are when we put our faith in him, we become disciples, learners of Christ. We got to know what we believe and why we believe it. Jesus lovingly calls us as a family, remember that's who we are in him as well, to gather, grow, and go around his word. And then as missionary servants, that's who we are as well, we can know this truth so we can show it and tell it to the world around us. So with all that, I want to pray and then ask Jesus' help and then dive into how the Bible is true. Do you believe it? Let's pray because I need his help and we need his help to hear this and to think through this. So let's ask him for it. So Father, thank you that we can sing songs to you this morning, that we can gather together in your name, that the reason we gathered is because you beat death. You came back to life and you are alive right now, seated at God's right hand, and you are raising us to life in you. When we put our faith in the right object, which is you, your perfect life, your death, and your resurrection, you cause us to go from death to life, to become born again, to get a brand new heart and a new spirit, and you put your Holy Spirit inside us. And then, as family of disciples and missionary servants, you help us grow around your word, gather in your name, and then go into the world around us. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at what we believe as a church, that you would please superintend these times, that your spirit would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to think through these things and to receive truth. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be open-minded to the point of never closing it, but I pray that when we find truth, which I'm hoping we find here and trusting that we find, that we would close our minds lovingly but firmly around the truth, that we would know what we believe and why we believe it, that we would stand unashamedly on your word and that we would speak your truth in love to those around us and to grow to become more like you. So this is more than we can do on our own, Lord. Thank you that you are in us. Thank you that you are enabling us to do this. 
So I give this sermon, the rest of this service, all our time together today, our connect groups, all the things we're doing as a church. I give these things to you and ask that you would show up in them and make us more like you. So please, Lord, lead us now as we go into our statement of faith. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So when you go to our website, bccdelmar.org, and you hover over meat, you will see a tab there that says what we believe. So if you're wondering, where do I find this statement of faith? We printed them out, but if you want an electronic copy or see it on our website, it's under that. So when you click the what we believe tab, there's going to be a link toward the bottom that says statement of faith. You click that, opens up, and this is what it says, the first paragraph. As a body of God's believing children, the faith of this congregation is in God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The statement of faith does not in any way replace Holy Scripture or exhaust the extent of our beliefs. The Bible itself is the inspired and infallible Word of God and is the sole and final source of all that we believe. We do believe that the following statement of faith accurately represents the teachings of the Bible and is binding upon all members. Accordingly, everything we endeavor to do shall be in accord with this statement of faith. The statement of faith establishes what we believe, uh, what we believe constitutes the essential doctrines that are foundational to our faith in Christ and shall be guiding principles by which we as a church will function in all aspects of ministry. And then finally, when it comes to faith, doctrine, practice, policy, and discipline, the Board of Elders is Bethlehem Community Church's final interpretive authority on the Bible's meaning and application. So all that to say, we take this very, very seriously and rightly understood. Our statement of faith gives us a strong foundation to all we believe and do here as a church. So after that introduction, the first focal point you'll see is our beliefs about the Bible. It's got to start somewhere, and that's where our statement of faith starts. And that leads us into our first point this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, we believe the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, was given by divine inspiration and is the complete and divine revelation of God to mankind and the very word of God. Nothing like coming out swinging, right? <laughs> this is what we believe. This is what we're going to stand on. So let's unpack that a little bit. Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Frank Turek wrote a lot of really good books. I'll reference, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, quite a lot. It was a very impactful book in my life. They argue that the Bible is true because of the following reasons. And if again, if you're taking notes, by all means. They say that number one, truth about reality is knowable. That's the first blank, is knowable. That truth about reality is knowable. And the opposite of truth is what? False, okay? Number two, they say that it is true that the theistic God exists. This is shown to be true through the evidence that the universe had a beginning. It's not eternal. The universe had a beginning. This is what's called the cosmological argument that the universe and all of us 
are incredibly designed, that's the teleological argument, and the fact that some things are absolutely right and some things are absolutely wrong. No matter what our culture says, this is the way it is. It's called the moral argument. They then draw the conclusion that there was once a time in which there was no time, no space, and no matter, and then bang, time, space, and matter leapt into existence. Spoiler alert, the bang is when God spoke everything into existence. They argue that someone outside of time, eternal, outside of space, spaceless, and someone outside of matter, immaterial, brought everything into existence. They argue that this being is personal, powerful, moral, and creative, and that the greatest miracle is him creating everything out of nothing. And since he did that with ease, he could use miracles inside that world to confirm messages from him to us. So as we flip through the pages of Scripture, that's exactly what we see. We see this self-existent, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, personal, powerful, moral, and intelligent creator bringing all things into existence through his powerful word and communicating with us special revelation so we can know him in a personal way. He didn't just leave us down here to grope around in the dark to figure this out on our own. He gave us special revelation so we can know him, and that's called the Bible, right? So Turek and Geisler finished their argument by looking at the New Testament. They give incredible evidence how the New Testament and the whole Bible, but they start with the New Testament, is historically reliable, that has all the marks in an authentic document in that time period, and friends, it all rises and falls on Jesus. The New Testament claims that Jesus was God. He was God, the Son, in human flesh. Jesus confirmed this through the fulfillment of many prophecies about himself, his sinless life, his miraculous deeds, his prediction and accomplishment of his death and resurrection. And so the logical response is that Jesus, in fact, is God, the Son, in human flesh, and therefore, as God, whatever he teaches is true. So friends, Jesus taught the Bible is the word of God. So therefore, on his powerful, wonderful, matchless authority, it is, in fact, the word of God. You take out Jesus, you take out this book. Our Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And he says, this book is the word of God, and it is true. It all rises and falls on him. Isn't that amazing? It is God's word. So when we hold up this book, we're not just holding up any old book, another ordinary book among many. We are holding up the literal words of God written down for us. You want to know God? Get to know his word. It shows us what he's like, what he's done for us, who he is and who he forever will be. So when we look at the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, we believe that they're given to us through divine 
inspiration. So according to Dr. Gary Brashears and his book, Doctrine, this is what divine inspiration means. We've got to know this, that this book, again, is divinely inspired. This is what he means. People who are providentially prepared by God and motivated and superintended by the Holy Spirit spoke and wrote according to their own personalities and circumstances in such a way that their words are the very words of God. God's supernatural guidance of the writers and their situations enabled them to receive and communicate all God would have us know for his glory and our salvation. We call this divine inspiration. Putting a bit more technically, the writings themselves have the quality of being God-breathed. It's not the authors or the process that is inspired, but the writings. What we have here in Scripture is inspired by God. The belief that God wrote Scripture in concert with human authors whom he inspired to perfectly record his words is called verbal, which means the very words of the Bible, plenary, every part of the Bible, inspiration, God-breathed revelation. So taking all of that, making it kind of simple, this means that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired not just the thoughts of Scripture, but also the very details and exact words that are perfectly recorded for us as Scripture. It's a lot, I know. But again, we've got to know this. Inspired means that those God used to write this book were carried along by the Holy Spirit to record the very words of God himself. So not only are these words inspired, but friends, they are complete, meaning that God is not still adding to these books. The 66 books that made up the Bible have one consistent message that salvation is by grace through faith in the one God sent for us, which was Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is the linchpin for these books. He authorized the writing of the New Testament. He validates the Old Testament as scripture. And he is the reason we believe this book is inspired by God. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you might as well take your Bibles, go find a garbage can, and throw them in. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins, we have no hope, and what are we even doing here? We might as well just go home and watch the game later, which I think are going to be really good. <laughs> right? Who are you rooting for? I'm rooting for the Bengals. I'm just excited that they're underdog. But Jesus was the ultimate underdog. He was the ultimate underdog, right? Ultimate underdog who came back to life, so excited that we can gather in his name. It all rises and falls on him. So that is the first part of our statement of faith, namely that the 66 books God gave us were given through divine inspiration. They are complete, and the divine uh, revelation of God to mankind. And friends, this is the very word of God. So this then leads seamlessly into our second point. We believe the scriptures are an errant, infallible, God-breathed, 
and are the final authority for faith and life. Sometimes people, when they take this book and they're looking at it, they're like, well, I mean, how can this book that was written between 2,000 and 4,000 years ago speak to my life in 2022? How in the world can it still possibly be relevant and applicable? I mean, do I really need it? Can't I just figure life out on my own? Can't I just decide what's right and wrong and then hope that there, if, if there is a deity out there that he may bless that? Or maybe let's just pretend he doesn't exist at all. I'll just figure it out on my own. Sound familiar? Well, as we look at the words in our statement of faith, this is, what, this is why it's highlighted as such. Inerrant means that the scriptures are perfect. They're perfect without any error. And infallible means that they are incapable of error. Now, why am I saying that? Well, because God does not lie. God does not lie. And because the scripture are his words, they are perfect. God is perfect, and his word is perfect to us. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. We're going to look at this tonight in, in, in the, the connect groups this week. But gosh, listen to these scriptures. They're so beautiful. Scriptures, testimony about itself. Take a look. This is what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Isn't that a beautiful passage of Scripture about God's Word and its power and authority and what it does in our life and how much it's worth? So according to the, the writer, God's Word is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, and desirable. God is outside of time. So when he speaks, his word has power to revive our soul, make us wise, rejoice our heart, enlighten our eyes, and cause us to walk with him. They're not just 2,000 to 4,000 years old. They are for everyone, everywhere, at all times, forever. It is God's word. So whatever year we find ourselves in, it applies. There's not a moment it doesn't apply. Always applicable. So how do you look at the scriptures? How do we really, truly look at the scriptures? Do we see them like that? Do we treat them like that? Are we growing in them because of that? It's an invitation. Wherever we are, take that next step. Take that next step to get to know God through his word. Well, not only that, but the Bible is relevant and applicable because the words are God-breathed. Take a look at these two scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Powerful. Take a look at this other scripture, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We have the prophetic word more confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So friends, again, these are not just mere words. They are God's very word to us. And as such, they have the final authority for faith and life. Every person on the planet has some final authority for faith and life. Faith is always in something. Every person has faith. It's always in something. But the question is, what's it in? What is your faith in? And how reliable is the final authority that you are betting on? Would we ever, why would we ever trust ourselves as the final authority when we have something as robust and reliable as God's very word to us? So friends, I just want to ask us, where is our final authority this morning? What is it in? Is it a good final authority? Is it the kind of final authority that can save you, not just in this life, but eternally? Is it the kind of authority that can actually do something about our sin and about death and about hell, our greatest enemies? If not, I encourage you to find a better final authority. And I have a really good hint of where to find one. (laughs) Right here. (laughs) One it points to. So where is our final authority? This is an invitation from God himself to each one of us to let him guide our lives. God wants to be the final authority for our lives. And since he's the creator and we are the created, let's not mix that up, right? We are the created. He is the creator. Kind of defines things. And as such, we should trust him. He's so good and kind and loving and powerful and gracious and holy and perfect in every way. He's inviting us to trust him. One of my favorite verses, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, says it this way. Trust in the Lord with some of your heart. Wait, what? Oh, you know your word. That's great. Trust in the Lord with all, all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, which means know him deeply, intimately. And as we do that, he promises to make straight our paths. Who here wants a straight path in life? Right? A path directed by God where we are literally walking with God in this life. Isn't that what your new redeemed heart wants? to walk with God, to know him, not just know about him, but know him intimately, to get guidance and direction for our lives from him and to do life with him. That's, what, that's what's at stake here. 
And that's why we go to the Word, to get to know Him. So we don't have to just figure out life on our own. He'll, he'll lead us. He'll guide us as we trust him and know him intimately. He will make our path straight. So that's the second part of our statement of faith on the Bible, namely that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, God-breathed, and is the final authority for faith in life, leading us, hopefully, to trust God as that final authority. And so now this leads us to number three, our final point for this morning. We believe the scripture shall be interpreted according to the normal, grammatical, historical, literal, and contextual meanings. That's a lot of words. <laughs> what do those words mean? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to share real quick what they mean. So in Bible college and seminary, this was called the golden rule of understanding the Bible. Dr. D.L. Cooper says it this way, when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, Seek no other sense, right? The scriptures are meant to be understood, right? They're not, you know, something allegorizing and something we can, well, I think it means this or that. No, they have a very clear, purposeful meaning. So in our statement of faith, there are five words that we use to help us understand how we are to look at the scriptures. Normal, grammatical, historical, literal, and contextual. I found some really helpful definitions of these words on a website called gracethroughfaith.com, and I just want to share them with you before we wrap up this morning. So number one, when we say normal, that's an invitation to understand the Bible in its plain meaning unless the passage is intended to be symbolic or figures of speech are used. So friends, here's the word of thumb. Unless it's otherwise indicated, we're to assume the Bible means exactly what it says. Come to it. Read it. Assume it means exactly what it says. So that prohibits us from reading our own ideas into the text or spiritualizing what's there. So listen, I've heard some really outlandish stuff through the years. One of my favorites is when Jesus is walking on the water and he calls Peter on the water. The speaker said the point wasn't Peter having faith in Jesus, but Jesus having faith in Peter. Right? That sound of spin on the text sounds esoteric and cryptic and cool and hip and you found something that no one else has ever seen before. Just switch the words around and you can put it even on like a meme or on Facebook or Instagram, right? Well, unless otherwise noted, let the Bible say what it says. So that's, that's normal, right? Moving on, when we see the word grammatical, this means that words are given meaning with their common understanding in the original language at the time of its writing. This means that we follow the rules of grammar and recognize the nuances of Hebrew, that's what the Old Testament's written in, and a little Aramaic, and Greek, Koine Greek. That's why it's a good thing to look at commentaries, right? To figure out what do these words mean? One of my favorites is when Jesus said, it is finished. That's in the perfect tense in the Greek. According to Dr. Ray Pritchard, the perfect tense speaks of an action that has been completed in the past with results continuing 
into the present. That's because in the Greek, when Jesus cried out, it's finished, he meant it's finished in the past, it's still finished in the present, and it will forever be finished in the future. It will remain finished, right? So that's what we're invited into, is to understand what do these words mean when they were said, and then how do we build a bridge into our day to understand the principles to pull from it? So that's grammatical. Number three, when we see historical, that means, that means we're invited to understand the culture, the background, and the situation that prompted the text. We had to remember, Scripture was written at a certain time, at a certain place. So our job is to understand what in the world is going on in that time when it's written so then we can build the bridge into our day so we can apply it correctly. Commentaries, chronological Bibles are really good for this. So they show us, for example, what's going on in Acts. So when you're reading the epistle to the Galatians, you're like, oh my gosh, I get it now. Every time Paul went to a new place, he had these Judaizers come after him and basically try to get people to go back to the law that they were set free from. He's like, well, if you're, as long as you're circumcised, you'll be right with God. Forget all this faith in Jesus stuff. You actually have to do X, Y, and Z to be right with God. So everywhere Paul went to preach it, preach the gospel, and churches were raised up, he would leave, go somewhere else, and then this group of Judaizers would come in and say, no, 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 everything you heard in Paul, that's bogus. This is what you got to do to be saved. How do you think those people felt? Probably a little confused, right? So that's what it means. You're reading that. You're understanding what's going on. Then when you read the book of Galatians, you're like, I get it now. That's what was going on. That's what prompted that letter, right? So that's what we mean by historical understanding what's going on around the writing of it so we interpret it correctly. When we see number four, literal, this means that each word is given the same basic meaning it would have in normal, ordinary, customary language, whether employed in writing, speaking, or thinking. So friends, this is an invitation for us to receive the Bible as it is, to take the Bible at face value. So when Jesus says we are saved by grace through faith and what he did for us, that means we are saved by grace through faith in what he did for us, placing our faith in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. So that's literal. We don't, we don't get a chance to play with that. And be like, well, I don't really like that. That kind of offends my sensibilities as someone living in 2022. The cross is kind of too bloody. So I'm just going to move all that stuff out of there and as long as, you know, God's at the top of a mountain, as long as you have your path up the mountain, yeah, you'll be all right. No, <laughs> right? We've got to take what the Bible says is true about this. He's the only way. He's not a way, a truth, and a life. He is the way, the truth, the life. So we receive these things literally as he said it. And it's a guardrail for us. And then number five, contextual. This means we've got to consider the surrounding context of a verse or a passage when trying to understand the meaning. The context includes the verses immediately preceding and following the verse in question. And the idea is keep zooming out. Keep zooming out to the chapter, the book, and most broadly, the Bible as a whole. Now, we don't just pick up any random novel, flip to the middle, and pick our favorite sentence, do we? I mean, that's, that's, that's absurd, right? Just go home today. Try it. I dare you. I dare you. Go home, find your favorite novel, flip open to your favorite sentence, and just put your finger on it. And that's your verse for the day. That's your sentence for the day. 
That's crazy. Have fun with it, right? Actually, I think I shared this in one of the foundations classes. One guy was like, God, speak to me. He's like, all right, Lord, I'm just going to open my Bible. And it says, huh. Judas went out and hanged himself. He closed it. And then he's like, all right, Lord, uh, speak to me. Go and do likewise. He's like, oh my gosh. So don't play Bible roulette, okay? It's not smart. Uh, we don't do it in regular books, right? Why would we do it with God's word? Read whole books in context. Understand what's being said. Use appropriate and good commentaries. If there's something you don't understand, do it together and see Jesus in it. But again, the context is so important. So with the Bible, we are to understand words and sentences, paragraphs, chapters, books, and as they fit into the whole counsel of God. And that's why as a church, we preach through whole books of Scripture. We do that, and we're going to keep on doing that because we want to know every word of God. We don't want to just not look at the verses we don't like very much. We want to know what God says, what God requires of us, what he wants for us in life. So the, the, the challenge is keep zooming out. So what an awesome invitation to believe that the Bible is God's word. We are to treat it accordingly as we read it, study it, savor it, and see Jesus in it. And then with his help to live that out. So as we started this morning, we started our time talking about guardrails. Remember that story? Pastor's daughter twirling around, fell off. Guardrails are important to our life. And friends, our statement of faith, I believe, is a really solid guardrail for us. It's like the elders came up with it. They're just trying to see, what does the scripture teach about our faith? Let's get that down on paper so we're really clear. They are really solid guardrails. We saw that the Bible was given to us by inspiration. It's complete, and it's the divine revelation of God to mankind, and it is the Word of God. We saw that the Bible, because it is God's Word, is inerrant, infallible, God-breathed, and is the final authority for our faith in life. And finally, we saw, well, how do we handle it? Well, we should interpret it according to the normal, grammatical, historical, literal, and contextual meanings. And friends, these are guardrails for us. They keep us on the straight and narrow. The opposite of this, think about that for a moment, would be to approach the Bible however we want, to cherry-pick verses out of it, to read into it whatever we want it to say, and to spiritualize the meaning to living a happy little life according to what we want it to say. But we, we can't do that, can we? I mean, we can. Should we? I don't think so. That's not what God wants for us. As disciples of Jesus, this is where we own our walk with him. We, we, we learn from him and his word. There's no life or transformation in just doing what we want with it. We've got to look at the scriptures as God shows us to. But when we accept the Bible as it very is, the word of God to us, that gives us a strong foundation to build our lives on. So in this crazy world system we find ourselves in, I, would, I, I beg God to help us be the kind of people that believe with all our heart that the Bible is true from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, that it is true and that it is the vehicle God uses to transform our lives. Good seed in good soil, right? That's, a, that's the word. So with that, why don't we pray and then we'll go into communion this morning. So, Father, I want to thank you that we can take a look at the first part of our statement of faith, 
And it reminds me and it reminds us, I hope, that your word is true. Lord, in the world we find ourselves in where truth is such a commodity even, I pray that we would understand that your word is true, that we don't have to look elsewhere. You tell us what's real. You tell us how to have a relationship with you. You tell us what, what it looks like to live in this world that you put us in. And Lord, we need your help. So I just pray that wherever we're at with this, whether we don't read your Bible at all, or maybe we're just reading a little bit or a lot, maybe we, maybe we don't think it's your word, wherever, you, wherever we're at, I pray you'd help us take the next step. I pray you'd help us to read it, and not just read it, but meditate on it, to study it, to understand it, that, Lord, we would talk to you as we're reading it. You're the author. Help us talk to you as we read your word. And then I pray that you, as you promised by your spirit, would illuminate the scriptures to us as we read them. That those verses that we need in the days that we're living in, that you would lead us to those, that you would speak to us through your word. That would be life-giving. That would be everything that Psalm 19 says it is for us. So Lord, when we fall down on this, when we don't do this the right way, I just pray that you would just gently and lovingly guide us back to the truth and help us be the kind of people that love your word because it points to you. So, Lord, we give you our own personal time in the word. We give you our time in the word together as a church and families and all of it. We ask you keep transforming it and letting us see you through it. So thank you for our time today, Lord. Speak to our hearts of how you would have us apply this and help us just keep looking at our statement of faith because they are solid guardrails and help us believe that your word is true. We believe it. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your name. Amen.